0: Chapter 9 of Fighting the Flames by R. M. Ballantyne. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Zena Blue. Fighting the Flames by R. M. Ballantyne. Chapter 9. As the brothers drew near to the busy region of the city, which lies to the north of London Bridge, Frank turned aside into one of the narrow streets that diverge from the main thoroughfare. "'Where are ye going?' inquired Willie. "'There was a fire here last night,' said Frank. "'I went to have a look at the damage.' "'A fire?' exclaimed Willie. "'Why, blazes! It strikes me there's been more fires than usual last night in London.' "'Only two, lad.' "'Only two. How many would you have?' asked Willie with a laugh. "'Don't you know,' said Frank, "'that we have about four fires every night, "'sometimes more, sometimes fewer. "'Of course, we don't all of us turn out to them, "'but some of the brigade turn out to that number, "'on an average, every night of the year.' "'Are you joking, Frank?' "'Indeed I am not. "'I wish with all my heart I could say that I was joking. "'It's a fact, boy.' "'You know I have not been long in the forest, yet I have gone to as many as six fires in one night, and we often go to two or three. The one we were going to see the remains of just now was too far from us for our engine to turn out, but we got the call to send a man on, and I was sent. When I arrived and reported myself to Mr. Braidwood, the two top floors were burnt out, and the fire was nearly got under.' There were three engines, and the men were up on the window-sills of the second floor with the branches, playing on the last of the flames, while the men of the salvage corps were getting the furniture out of the first floor. Conductor Brown was there with his escape, and had saved the whole family from the top floor just before I arrived. He had been changed from his old station at the west end that very day. He is a wonderful fellow, that conductor. Many a life he has saved." BUT, INDEED, THE SAME MAY BE SAID OF MOST OF THE MEN IN THE FORCE, ESPECIALLY THE OLD HANDS. HERE WE ARE, LAD, THIS IS THE HOUSE. FRANK STOPPED, AS HE SPOKE, IN FRONT OF A RUINED TENEMENT, OR, RATHER, IN FRONT OF THE GAP WHICH WAS NOW STREWN WITH THE CHARRED AND blackened DEBRIS OF WHAT HAD ONCE BEEN A HOUSE. THE STREET IN WHICH IT STOOD WAS A NARROW, MEAN ONE, INHABITED BY A POOR, AND, TO JUDGE FROM APPEARANCE, A DISSIPATED CLASS. The remains of the house were guarded by policemen, while a gang of men were engaged in digging among the ruins, which still smoked a little here and there. What are they digging for? asked Willie. I fear they are looking for dead bodies. The house was let to lodgers and swarmed with people. At first, it was thought they were all were saved, but just before I was ordered home after the fire was got under, someone said that an old man and his grandchild were missing. I suppose they're looking for them now." On inquiring of a policeman, however, Frank learned that the remains of the old man and his grandchild had already been found, and that they were searching for the bodies of others who were missing. A little beyond the spot where the fire had occurred, a crowd was gathered round a man who stood on a chair haranguing them, with apparently considerable effect for ever and anon his observations were received with cries of hear, hear, and laughter. Going along the middle of the narrow street, in order to avoid the smell of the old-clothes shops and pawnbrokers, as well as the risk of contact with their wares, Frank and Willie elbowed their way through the crowd to within a few yards of the speaker. "'What is he?' inquired Frank, of a rather dissipated elderly woman. He's a clown, or a hacker bat or something of that sort, in one of the theaters or music halls. He's been burnt out of his own last night, and is selling off all he's been able to save by auction. Come now, ladies and gents, cried the clown, taking up a rather seedy-looking greatcoat, which he held aloft with one hand and pointed to it with the other. Who's a-going to bid for this ere garment, a hextra-superfine, double-drilled, kershamir greatcoat? fresh from the looms of Tuscany. At least it was fresh from ten years ago. That was when my grandfather was made Lord Mayor of London, and it's been renewing its youth, the coat, not the Lord Mayor, ever since. It's more glossy, I do assure you, ladies and gents, than when it first come from the looms, by reason of the pile having worn off. And you'll observe the glossiness is most beautiful and brightest about the elbows and the seams of the back. "'Who bids for this ere venerable garment? Six Bob? Come now, don't all bid at once. Who said Six Bob?' No reply being made to this, except the laugh. The clown, who, by the way, wore a similarly glossy greatcoat with a hat to match, protested that his ears must have deceived him, or his imagination had been whispering hopeful things, which was not unlikely, for his imagination was a very powerful one, when he noticed Frank's tall figure among the crowd.' Come now, fireman, this is the wary article you wants. you come down to buy it, I know, and here it is, by strange coincidence. Ready made to hand. What would you bid, six bob or say five? I know you've got the wife and a large family o' young firemen to keep, so I'll let it go cheap. Perhaps it's too small for you, but that's easy put, right? You've only got to slit it up behind the neck, which is an infallible cure for a tight fit. "'And you can let down the cuffs, which is double. "'And if it's short, you can cut off the collar and sew it to the skirts. "'It's waterproof, too, and fireproof. "'Patent asbestos. "'When it's sturdy, you've got nothing to do but walk into the fire, "'and it'll come out new. "'When it's thoroughly wet on the outside, turn it inside out, "'and there you are, to all appearance as dry as bone. "'What? You want not have it at no price? "'Well, now I'll tempt you. I'll make it two Bob.' "'Say one!' cried a baker, who had been listening to this, with a broad grin on his flowery countenance. "'Ladies and gents!' cried the clown, drying himself up with dignity. "'There's an individual in this crowd. I beg pardon, this assemblage has asked me to say one. "'I do say one, and I say it with melancholy feelings as to the liberality of my species.' "'One bob, a feller man, has a bin burnt out of his home "'and needs ready money to keep him from starvation. "'Offers his best greatcoat, a extra super-fine, "'double-drilled, or milled, I forget which, "'Cershomere from the looms of Tuscany, for one bob.' "'One and six muttered an old clothes man, "'with a black cotton sack on his shoulder. "'One and six echoed the clown with animation. "'One and six bid, one and six who said one and seven? Was the gent with the red nose? No. One and six. Going at the ridiculously low figure. One and six. Gone. As the old woman who went her cat died of apoplexy. I've never knocked nothing down, not even a skittle, since I joined the Peace Society. Now, ladies and gents, the next thing I've got to offer is an armchair. Hand up the armchair, Jim. A very antique piece of furniture was handed up by a little boy, whom Willie recognized as the little boy who had once conversed with him in front of the chocolate shop in Holborn Hill. "'Thank you, my son,' said the clown, taking the chair with one hand and patting the boy's head with the other. "'This, ladies and gents,' he added in a parenthetical tone, "'is my son. He's been burnt out to house and home, too. Now, then, who bids for the old armchair?' the weary identical arm-chair that the song was written about. In the embrace of this here chair has sat for generations past the family of the Ocadalese. That's my name, ladies and gents, at your service. Here sat my great-great-grandfather, who was used to say that his great-grandfather sat in it too. Here sat his son and his son's son, the Lord Mayor's it was, and his son, my father. Ladies and gents, who died in it besides, and whose son now offers it to the highest bidder? You'll observe its antiquity, ladies and gents, that it's beauty. It's what I may call in the language of the aristocracy a harticle of virtu, which means that it's a harticle as is surrounded by virtuous memories in connection with the defunct. Now then, say five bob for the whole armchair. While the clown was endeavoring to get the chair disposed of, Willie pushed his way to the side of Jim Catley. "'I say, youngster, would you like a cup of chocolate?' began Willie, of recalling to the boy their farmer meeting. Jim, whose face wore a sad and dispirited look, turned angrily and said, "'Come, I don't want none of your sauce.' "'It ain't sauce I'm talking of. It's chocolate,' retorted Willie. "'But come, Jim, I don't want to bother ye. "'I'm sorry to see you and your dad such a fix. Have you lost much?' "'It's not what we've lost that troubles us,' said Jim, "'softened by Willie's sympathetic tone more than his words. "'But Sister Ziza is took bad, and she's a fairy at Drury Lane, "'and taking her down the fire-escape has well-nigh killed her. "'We've got such a gold damp cellar of a place to put her in "'that I don't think she'll get better at all. "'Anyhow, she'll lose her engagement, "'for she can't make two speeches and go up in a silver cloud "'among the blue fire with the fluenza.' and her air all but singed off her head. Jim almost whimpered at this point, and Willie, quitting his side abruptly, went back to Frank, who was still standing an amused auditor of the clown, and demanded a shilling. "'What's for, lad? Never you mind, blazes, but give me the bob, and I'll pay you back before the week's out.' Frank gave him a shilling, with which he at once turned to Jim, and thrusting it into his hand, said, "'There, Jim, your dad's hard up just now.' Go you, and get physic with that for the fairy. Influenzers is ticklish things to play with. Where do you stop? Well, you are a queer, and thank ye all the same, said Jim, pocketing the shilling. we got a sort of cellar just two doors east of the burnt house. Why? Because I'll come and see you, Jim. I'd like to see a live fairy in plain clothes, with her wings off. The rest of the sentence was cut short by the clown, who, having disposed of the old armchair to a chimney sweep, Ordered JIM TO END UP ANOTHER ARTICLE. AT THE SAME MOMENT FRANK TOUCHED WILLIE ON THE SHOULDER AND SAID, LET'S GO, LAD. I'LL BE LATE, I FEAR, FOR THE GYMNASTICS. AT THE PERIOD OF WHICH WE WRITE, THE THEN CHIEF OF THE LONDON FIRE BRIGADE, MR. BRAIDWOOD, HAD INTRODUCED A SYSTEM OF GYMNASTIC TRAINING AMONG THE FIREMEN, WHICH HE HAD FOUND FROM EXPERIENCE TO BE A MOST USEFUL EXERCISE TO FIT THE MEN FOR THE ARDUOUS WORK THEY HAD TO PERFORM before going to london to take command of and reorganize the brigade which then went by the name of the london fire engine establishment it was in a very unsatisfactory condition mr braidwood had for a long period been chief of the edinburgh fire brigade which he had brought to a state of great efficiency taking the requirements and conditions of the service in edinburgh into consideration he had come to the conclusion that the best men for the work in that city were masons house carpenters, slaters, and such like. But these men, when at their ordinary employments, being accustomed to bring only certain muscles into full play, were found to have a degree of stiffness in their general movements, which prevented them from performing their duty as firemen with that ease and celerity which are so desirable. To obviate this evil, he instituted the gymnastic exercises, which, by bringing all the muscles of the body into action, and by increasing the development of the frame generally, rendered the men lithe and supple, and in every way more fitted for the performance of duties in which their lives frequently depended on their promptitude and vigor. In addition to these advantages, it was found that those exercises gave the men confidence when placed in certain situations of danger. For example, writes Mr. Braidwood, a fireman untrained in gymnastics, on the third or fourth floor of a burning house, with a branch in his hands, who is uncertain as to his means of escape, in the event of his return by the stair being cut off, will be too much concerned about his own safety to render much service, and will certainly not be half so efficient as the experienced gymnast, who with a hatchet and eighty feet of rope at his waist, and a window near him, feels himself in comparative security." knowing that he has the means and the power of lowering himself easily and safely into the street, a knowledge which not only gives him confidence, but enables him to give his undistracted attention to the exigencies of the fire. It was to attend this gymnastic class that Frank now turned aside and proposed to bid Willie good-bye, but Willie begged to be taken into the room. Frank complied, and the boy soon found himself in an apartment fitted up with all the appliance of a gymnasium, where a number of powerful young men were leaping, vaulting, climbing, and in other ways improving their physical powers. Frank joined them, and for a long time Willie stood in rapt and envious contemplation of the busy scene. At first he could not avoid feeling that there seemed a good deal more of play than business in their doings but his admiration of the scene deepened when he remembered the bold acts of the firemen at beverly square and recognized some of the faces of the men who had been on duty there and reflected that these very men who seemed thus to be playing themselves would on that very night in all probability be called upon to exert these powers sternly and seriously yet coolly in the midst of scenes of terror and confusion and in the face of imminent personal danger Brooding over these things, Willie, having at length torn himself away, hastened on his pilgrimage to London Bridge. End of chapter 9 Read by Zena Blue